The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine Weekly Podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and this is the 3rd of our October 2011 editions. Don't forget, BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good newsagents and on subscription. Visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information, or why not follow us at Twitter, twitter.com slash historyextra, or Facebook facebook.com slash history extra now coming up we have we were jolly lucky that in a sort of backhanded way we sort of had hitler on our side that was sir max hastings on the second world war it was unpleasant i mean a big debate is just how unpleasant was it that was justin meggett on the experiences of those captured by north african pirates in the 17th century For our first interview this week, the magazine's deputy editor, Rob Attar, spoke with Sir Max Hastings. As a military historian, Max has been writing books about the Second World War for over 30 years. His new history of the conflict, All Hell Let Loose, has just been published, and he explained why there is still a great deal to say about this global conflagration. Obviously, many books have been written about the Second World War. What more is there to say, do you think? I never stopped being amazed. When I first started writing books about the Second World War back in 1979, I would never have guessed that in the 21st century I'd still be doing it or that there'd still be an audience. But, my gosh, there is this enormous audience. And one of the reasons is because there's always more to say. And I never stopped being amazed. Here have I been researching this period for 35 years, and one keeps being amazed by the things you find out. I mean, uh, for this book, to take some small things, uh, researching the Syrian campaign and hearing of the French air ace Pierre Legrand, who became an ace by shooting down seven hurricanes over Syria in 1941. And most people don't realise that, um, certainly until 1944, the French fought against us and even against the Americans a good deal more energetically, as Churchill complained, um, than they had against the Germans in 1940. The Madagascar campaign, when we landed in Madagascar to preempt a Japanese landing, and again, the Vichy French fought against us tooth and nail and came across a signal from a French submarine commander complaining that he'd been told to go off to the French colony of Dakar, and he was furious at having to leave without having had a chance to sink a British warship. Perspectives on the war, everybody now knows, as they didn't a generation ago, that the Russian front was important. But people are still amazed when you tell them that more than 90% of the German army's casualties in World War II happened on the Eastern Front. And the Russians incurred the overwhelming majority. It was 65% of all Allied military casualties in the war were Russians. How many were British and how many were American? 2% each. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that what we did wasn't important or whatever, but it just gives a sense of the perspective. I always enjoy counterfactuals. One of my favourite ones, which I put in this book, is about the Battle of Britain. That it was extraordinary that Hitler, having achieved this dazzling triumph in the summer of 1940, then went on and made the second biggest mistake of the war. Uh, The first biggest was obviously invading Russia, but the second biggest was to launch the Battle of Britain, to launch the Luftwaffe attack against Britain, which was almost the only sort of battle that the British at that stage were really well equipped to fight. We had fighter command with the most sophisticated um, fighter direction system in the world uh, uh, matched to radar and we had the fleet um, which was actually in many ways more important than fighter command for um, deterring the Germans from launching an invasion. Now I, I personally believe and I've said in the book that if instead of launching the Luftwaffe Hitler had simply gone off and left us to stew. If he'd sent 
even small forces, the Mediterranean, captured Gibraltar, captured Malta, thrown us out of the Middle East, got to Cairo, which he easily could have done at the end of 1940, 1941, then I think it would have been very difficult for Churchill's government to survive, very difficult to resist the appeasers who would have been demanding um, peace negotiations with, uh, with the Germans. Because what you have to remember is in 1939, everybody was terrified of an absolutely annihilating air attack on Britain. Now, if Hitler hadn't, hadn't sent the Luftwaffe, then people would have gone on being terrified of it. But as it happened, what they discovered was that although the Blitz was horrible, it wasn't nearly as bad as everybody thought, that all those statistics of hundreds of thousands of dead from an air attack, they found that, yes, um, there were thousands of dead, but you could put up with it. You could carry on producing in the factories. Life could go on. So Hitler exposed himself to defeat at British hands in 1940, whereas he had another much, much better option, which is just to leave us to sweat. So you think realistically the Germans could have easily won the war in 1940-1941? I don't think you can ever say that the Germans could easily have won the war, but it would have been a much more attractive option. I think they could have, um, they could have uh, probably knocked Britain out of the war. What one always has to remember is most of the British ruling class didn't like Churchill and thought that he was wrong to keep the war going. They thought it was absolutely hopeless. They thought we had no chance of beating Hitler. That a lot of the members of his own government, including Chamberlain and Halifax in the, uh, in the late summer and autumn of 1944, they really thought that um, peace was the best option. Now, as long as Churchill was there, they couldn't say that, they couldn't do anything about it. But I think Churchill's position would probably have become untenable if it hadn't been for the Battle of Britain and if we had been thrown out of the Mediterranean. And that, I think, then things would have got more interesting. Uh, then, of course, there would have been the huge question. If Hitler had then invaded Russia, um, what might have happened? Could he have won an overwhelming victory? He might have done. Hmm. And you say about um, throwing Britain out of the Mediterranean. Would the Royal Navy, do you not think, have had a, been able to prevent that from happening? The Royal Navy could have done very little in the Mediterranean when the Germans held all the air bases around it. That the Royal Navy clung to footholds on Malta and uh, at Alexandria, but it would have been somewhere between difficult and impossible for the Royal Navy to, um, to hold on against a really devastating German assault if, if the Luftwaffe had really gone down there in strength. I mean, the Royal Navy, as it was, suffered terrible casualties in the Mediterranean in 1940-41. So, um, in many ways, what Hitler did um, after June 1940 was what suited Churchill best. So do you think part of what you're doing with this book is attempting to correct popular misconceptions? I'm always trying very hard at this stage um, to put a, a global perspective on everything in, in that I, I focused a tremendous amount in this book on the experience of Poles and Yugoslavs and of course Russians because we are very prone, um, my generation were brought up to see the war in very British terms. But of course, we all grew up with the dam busters and reached for the sky. And all this is too important, and it, it's in my book. But one has to see this against the background of what was happening against the, against the world. That there's the British lose 450,000 dead in the war, which God knows was enough. But there's the Chinese, who nobody ever thinks of the Chinese being in the war, but 15 million Chinese died in the war. That's a story that, um, that most people um, ought to want to know more about. The story of India, that there you had 400 million Indians, not many of whom um, really felt the slightest loyalty to Britain. Britain had to keep more battalions doing internal security duties in India to effectively hold down the Indian population um, than it could deploy against the Japanese for most of the war. And then, of course, was the dreadful business of the, um, the Bengal famine in 1943, when, because the Japanese had captured Burma, from which most of Bengal's rice usually came, um, when um, a, a cyclone came and when they had a bad harvest and so on, suddenly Bengal finds itself starving. And the Viceroy of India appeals to London, and he says to Churchill, we've got to have shipping to bring supplies. And Churchill says, no. He amazed the Viceroy, and he amazed most of the people, the Secretary of State for India, um, Leo Amory. He was appalled. But Churchill took a very tough line. I think it was probably one of his worst decisions of the war. Churchill said the Indian people have just got to fend for themselves, that they've got to learn to um, put up and shut up. He said, we need all the shipping we got for amphibious operations, um, in the Mediterranean and then, of course, Normandy and so on. We can't spare shipping to send a, a lot of um, 
um, a lot of food to the Indians, whom he hated. He didn't like the Indians at all. He thought they were disloyal, treacherous, wretched people. And the result was that at least one million, and some modern Indian historians think as many as three million people died, while in the clubs of Calcutta, white Saibs were eating unlimited bacon and eggs. And it's not a pretty story. And I, I hasten to say none of this changes one's... We always have to keep in mind the fact, of course, our side deserved to win. And I'm not for a moment suggesting, oh, we were as bad as the Germans, or yeah. we were... There's no doubt the Allies were the good guys. But we also have to be aware that um, it, the story was a bit more complicated. They weren't entirely the good guys. Very few, very few times in history um, are people entirely the good guys, or for that matter, entirely the bad guys. Uh, so those, these are stories that deserve to be told. And, um, and also, of course, there are some stories of, of heroism that people don't know. I, I never stop being amazed by... Um, I was terribly moved reading about the Arctic convoys, which I thought I knew quite a lot about, but so many stories of the Royal Navy's convoys to the Arctic, in which they suffered such terrible losses, are not well known. There was one about an engineering officer who, when his ship, I think it was the cruiser Trinidad, um, was sinking, and all his stokers were trapped below. And this man, who was up on the upper deck, uh, he said, I'm not going to leave my men, and he was last seen going down below to join his stokers and go to the bottom of the Arctic with them. And I, that sort of story, even after all these years I've been writing about these things, one is so moved by these stories. And, damn it, although we all think we know the story of the Dambusters, that that too remains, and I, I've devoted several pages to that story because it is so extraordinary. It was the greatest precision bombing feat of the war, and all the debunkers and detractors in the world have not been able to knock any holes in that that um, what Guy Gibson and 617 Squadron did was quite extraordinary. And um, again and again, you find that heroic stories aren't quite what they were made out to be. But in this case, that story really was everything it was made out to be. So it was actually lived up to the legend, the, re the reality? The only thing, if you want to nitpick a bit what you have to say, the economic achievement was quite limited um, because the trouble was... Um, Everybody was told afterwards that the Mona and the Ada dams, which were destroyed, were the vital targets. But actually, RAF Economic Intelligence knew perfectly well that the Sorpi Dam was the key one, that the Sorpi, if they'd been able to blow the Sorpi as well, then they could have had a devastating effect on raw steel production. But as it was, the Sorpi was an earth dam, which wasn't as susceptible as the Mona and the Ada to Barnes Wallace's bouncing bombs. So they failed against the Sorpi and the Germans German steel production wasn't much affected. The main effect was that before that the Germans hadn't bothered much about defending reservoirs and dams. But after that, they had to waste a lot of resources for the rest of the war defending their dams. So it certainly wasn't a waste of time. And the moral effect was terrific. I mean the, the news the Dambusters raid swept around the world. And British people, what one wishes to remember about the war it went on such a long time and it was such a grim, dreary, gloomy experience for most people who weren't at the glamorous end of it, who weren't flying Spitfires, who weren't commanding destroyers, that for most people it was just unbelievably dreary and miserable and it was about separations and loneliness and so on. And so these little rays of hope, these sudden little flashes of sunshine were hugely important to people. And the Dam's Raid was, was one, of the, one of the foremost of these. But... It, it, it is what, what I've tried to do in this book, more than anything. In other books, I've written about the big people and the warlords and Stalin and Churchill and Hitler and Roosevelt and so on. In this book, is overwhelmingly about to try and answer the question, what was the war like? And of course, it meant very different things to different people. And I've tried to explain what it was like for a British housewife or for that matter, an American housewife and for a Chinese peasant and for a Russian infantryman. And it was very different things for all these. And um, most people, I mean, for example, you find lots of diaries of, of English women complaining about how dreary rations were. And there's a very vivid and funny account of a small boy who remembered his father at the breakfast table saying to his mother one morning, what is this disgusting thing you put on the table? And she said, it's carrot marmalade. And he got up from the table and he picked up the jar and carried it outside and threw it on the compost heap. <laughs> and, and yet carrot marmalade, if you were a prisoner in Changi jail with the Japanese or if you were in besieged Leningrad, was, would have been a delicacy beyond price. People 
in Britain. Everybody's heard of Stalingrad these days. Far fewer people know about the siege of Leningrad. At least 800,000 people starved to death in Leningrad. The siege of Leningrad went on at its worst for two years and altogether about three years. And people ate each other. Cannibalism became rife in Leningrad because there was nothing else. People were being murdered in the streets, not for their property, their money was no use to anybody, but for their flesh. And if you contrast, I mean, I've always argued in all my books that I believe you needed people as tough and ruthless as the Russians to be able to defeat um, the, the ruthlessness of Hitler. I don't think we could have done it. I think that supposing Coventry had been besieged or Birmingham, and the people of Coventry or Birmingham had been asked, well, are you willing to keep this siege going uh, even if it means eating each other? Well, of course they wouldn't have been. They just said, well, maybe Nazi rule won't be that bad. That's what they'd have said. And you needed, um, I, I think, one of Hitler's huge miscalculations, which I've written about in the book. He despised the Russians. He thought Barbarossa, the invasion of Russia, was going to be easy because after beating um, Britain and France, supposedly the most powerful and sophisticated nations uh, in Western Europe, he thought that dealing with the, the savages of Russia would be a doddle. What he never took into account was that it might be more difficult to defeat a people inured to suffering and hardship and brutality than to defeat the people of democracies in whom moderation and respect for human life were thought to be virtues. I mean, we have to remember Stalin's commissars shot something over 200,000 of their own people, um, maybe as many as 300,000 of their own people in the course of the war for alleged desertion or cowardice or whatever. And somehow, when you have to accept, this is a very powerful force in keeping the Red Army fighting. That why did they fight like tigers at Stalingrad? Partly, yes, they were jolly brave, but also because they knew jolly well that if they didn't, they were going to be shot. And that was not true in the British Army. The British Army knew that if you ran away, um, that um, everybody might be terribly cross with you, but they'd, in the end, they'd give you some bacon and eggs and find you another uniform and maybe let you fight another day. Now, that was very nice and very humane, but it didn't help a lot when it came to defeating the Nazis. So it seems like perhaps British suffering, although bad, was really nothing compared to what Russia went through, or the Soviet Union in the war. Our experience is nobody it would be impertinent for anyone of our generation who didn't live through the war um, to suggest that uh, one has to remember the war was horrible for everybody. This is very important. There were a very small number of adventurers who really had a good time in the war, but for most people it was a horrible, horrible experience, especially for women. Partly, although some of them it gave terrific opportunities to, and I've written about this at length because women often don't get enough attention in books about the war. But yes, some women were empowered by the war. They had responsibilities and opportunities they hadn't had before. But one of the principal defining characteristics of the war is it exposed women all over the world to sexual exploitation on an unprecedented scale in a world that was arbitrated by force. It was a ghastly, ghastly experience. All I'm really saying is, it's not that, oh, it wasn't that bad for the British. I'm saying it wasn't as bad for the British as it was for the Russians and the, and the Chinese. But, oh gosh, you've only got to read the diaries of people. I mean, the separations, the loneliness of, even if nothing happened to one of your family, to find your husband taken away from you for three, four years, um, your young children growing up not knowing their father, um, often when their father did return, um, it took years for a family to readjust to um, learning to know each other again. And so there was that aching loneliness. And then, of course, in a lot of cases, um, women especially, but also men, when they had the opportunity, would find consolation with other people somewhere else. And then there was that ghastly guilt. And, um, that, and children, too, again, some children... Um, managed to quite enjoy the war, but for most it was terrible beyond belief. And again, I go back to the siege of Leningrad, that um, by far um, uh, the, 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 biggest, uh, the biggest rations were given, and the rations were pretty miserable, to workers who were capable of working. Um, Stalin's Russia was absolutely ruthless about giving absolutely minimal rations to those who couldn't work, which meant the very young and the very old. So 
babies and old people died in hugely disproportionate numbers there. And it was, it was unspeakably cruel. And again and again and again, um, in accounts and diaries and letters, you come across these horrific stories of what happened to very, very young people, innocents. Um, and at every level, um, even in Britain, uh, that yes, a few of them may have enjoyed it, but for most it was a ghastly experience. I mean, did you find it quite difficult to contain the whole conflict in one book, especially with trying to get all these perspectives in the book? Nobody can tell the whole story of the war in a single volume, and if you try, you're bound to fail, because this was the greatest event in human history. What any one writer can do is to produce their own personal take on the war. And what I've tried to do is, first of all, I haven't said much about things I've written about in earlier books. Like, I mean, I devoted a whole chapter of Nemesis to writing about the dropping of the atomic bomb. So I, I haven't gone over my own arguments in that. What I've tried to do is pick out things that I feel I can tell people things that may surprise them a little and give them a perspective on the war that um, they hadn't seen before. And I was terribly pleased that a very famous historian whom I greatly admire, whom I got to read the manuscript, and he said, I really didn't believe, Max, when you started this, that you could produce any surprises, but you managed to produce an amazing number of surprises. And so I was awfully pleased that he said that, and I hope that, um, that ordinary readers will find exactly the same. That um, it's a very personal account, but um, it, it has tried to major on, on the things that may surprise people a bit. So does that mean you haven't, say, gone into huge depth on things that people know quite a lot about, say the Battle of Britain? I haven't gone into it. There's no point. In, I, I just, in every chapter, I said to myself, um, of course you have to keep the narrative framework um, to go from 1939 to 45. You have to give people the basic events. But at every turn, you try to give most space to the things that may surprise people and least space to the things they know. There's no point in going over all the detail of the Hitler bomb plot again, or, um, for, for that matter, of, of, of the detail of the Battle of Alamein. Um, in the same way, um, my maps in the book, have, um, I've left out of both the maps and the task all the, all the numbers of armies and divisions and all that sort of thing, because... Um, this isn't supposed to be a military history. This is supposed to be a portrait of human experience. And I suppose the chapters, if anything, I'm most proud of in the book, I've written one chapter um, simply about what the war, what the experience of war, I think I call it living, um, living with war, in which I've just tried to write about um, what it meant to live through the war for different sorts of people. And another chapter I've written uh, headed Divided Loyalties, which is trying to explain that in almost every society there were um, people, in some cases a lot of people, who just um, didn't agree with the view that their nation was taking, that uh, about which side they were on. But, um, I mean, America, one has to remember, in 1939, I think it was something like an opinion poll, showed that 20-something um, percent of Americans thought that if Americans wanted to join the Wehrmacht, they should be allowed to. Um, in 1942, another opinion poll showed that something like 30-something percent of Americans believed that um, it would be perfectly okay to make a separate peace with Germany. They didn't feel that hostile. They hated the Japanese because of Pearl Harbor, but they didn't hate the Germans in the same way. Canadians, French Canadians, were very against the war. You know, French, there were a lot of French Canadians. And you know, I came across a, an RAF pilot's diary who passed through Quebec and he said some of his mates got beaten up by French Canadians who bitterly resented the fact that Canada was in the war. And of course, one has to remember, neither Canada nor Australia ever dared, or Australia did at the very end, to introduce um, compulsory overseas service, conscription for overseas war service, because it would have been too unpopular. And quite a lot of Australians and quite a lot of Canadians chose to stay at home. Um, some went abroad and fought very bravely, but there were also an awful lot who said, um, thanks, but no thanks, um, I'll do my military service back home. Um, at France, I've already said something about how incredibly divided France were. One has to remember the basic statistic. Substantially more French people carried arms for Vichy security forces or for the Germans than ever did for the Allies or joined the resistance or anything else. But... Um, that France was a bitterly divided society, and most 
there, there were a lot of divisions. South Africa, for example, uh, one has to remember a future, one future South African prime minister had to be interned because he was a Nazi sympathizer. A lot of Afrikaners um, were violently against South Africa being in the war um, on the Allied side. Uh, of course, Jan Smuts, Churchill's close friend, had brought South Africa in, but, um, but there were bitter divisions. There were riots in, um, in Johannesburg at one point against the war, I think in 1940. So um, again and again, what you find is there are all sorts of nuances about people's attitudes to all this. That, um, that I mean, even the Poles, I mean, here this is, the Poles were the great victims of the war. Terrifying to think five million Poles died in the war, admittedly a lot of them Jews. But when the Poles first came over to Britain, they were heroes and they were treated as heroes and the Poles made a wonderful contribution to the Allied war effort. But then this great tragedy, as the war went on, the British people became obsessively enthusiastic about the Russians because they knew the Russians were fighting so hard. And so when the Russians turned against the Poles, um, so did a lot of British people. And it's really depressing to read in Polish diaries to find that um, um, British people were being, a lot of British people were being pretty horrid to Poles in Britain, even wearing, even ones wearing British uniform in 1944-45 because they accused them of just being troublemakers who were upsetting the Russians. Whereas all these Poles wanted was to live in a free, non-communist Poland at the end of the war. And Poland, it was the great tragedy that here were all these Poles who'd fought arguably more heroically than any other nation against the Nazis and who, whom um, a couple of hundred thousand accepted exile, far more than Frenchmen mm. did, um, in order to come and, uh, and fight with us. And yet at the end of the war, most of those people had to stay as permanent exiles in the West because if they went back to Poland, they were killed. And do you feel this this kind of side of the war isn't as well known because it's just a bit unpalatable now. People don't want to think about British people misbehaving or about the French being on the German side. And I don't think an awful lot of the things I'm talking about are not great secrets. They're, they're just the war was such a big event that inevitably we tend to focus on things that we like and we find cosy and convenient. Um, and yeah, we all like Reach for the Sky and Kenneth Moore in his hurricane and all the rest of it. That's, that's, that's terrific fun. Um, and, we, and it just now, it seems to me, that to justify um, writing and reading new books about the war at this stage, we have to be looking at new issues. What, what I've failed if readers read this book and think, oh, well, we've been here before. And all the time, you've got to say to yourself, here I am doing something um, which is pretty cheeky, writing another book about the Second World War in the 21st century, um, that... The only case for doing that is if you can draw people's attention to things they hadn't thought that much about before. And I never cease to be amazed by just how many things like that there are, which are absolutely fascinating. And um, all the cliches about wars are true, and especially about the Second World War, that um, the best people behave unbelievably well and the worst people behave unbelievably badly. Do you think your book might ruffle a few feathers with some of the, the statements that, that have been made? There's been a big change um, over my lifetime as a writer in that when I started writing, an awful lot of veterans were still alive and they um, fought very hard indeed to discourage another generation from, as they saw it, um, sullying um, um, their heritage, their reputation. Um, they didn't want to really rethink the issues. And who can blame them? I, I, I guess we all... But um, now they're gone, it's easier to look more objectively at things. I was terribly struck 20 years ago when I wrote my book, um, Overlord, about the Normandy campaign. And um, I suggested there, the, which was then a sort of revolutionary idea, I said, we have to face the fact the German army was the best army of the war by miles. And it was very striking, the correspondence I had, a lot of ordinary British soldiers, veterans, went bonkers. And veterans associations sent me rude letters, you know, round robins saying, how dare you say that, the Tommy was the... But the officers, I was amazed the letters, and I've kept them all. Um, officers who served in Normandy wrote me amazing letters describing their feelings and their attitude. And I think without exception, all of them said, yes, we knew the Germans were much better than us that we were only able to beat them because we had more of everything, especially air power and tanks and so on. 
And um, the sort of story which I've included in this book, following the publication of Overlord, very interesting man who later became a Tory MP called Anthony Kershaw, who'd been brigade major of an armoured brigade um, in Normandy. And he wrote saying just how good the Germans were, and they always realised that the Germans were fantastic. Um, but he also said, um, he said, it's terribly embarrassing to look back and remember how unkeen our chaps, he said, had fought in the desert for two or three years. And when they got home to England, they wanted to think that it was somebody else's turn and they wouldn't have to go and do D-Day. And um, he said, we nearly had a mutiny in one of the tank regiments, I think it was Third Royal Tanks, when he said um, they daubed their barracks with slogans, no second front now. And he said, if we hadn't put in a new commanding officer who managed to more or less persuade them to go and do it, he said, I really think we might have had an actual mutiny. Well, these are sort of stories you didn't hear much about 20, 30 years ago. Um, but nowadays, um, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't mean, um, I don't want anyone ever to think. I, I have enormous respect for the generation that did these things. And I always say in the introduction to all my books, uh, that none of us must ever forget how privileged we all are that we haven't had to go through this. And really what's remarkable is how well our parents and grandparents did through these ghastly experiences, but it's not in any way diminishing them to try and look at these things in perspective and try and see things as they, rather, as they really were, rather than through a sort of um, rose-tinted specs. It's no disgrace to say that they were fighting the best army in the world anyway, surely that's an achievement in some ways. They were... Well, actually, one of the important things I've said in my book, which I do think, I don't think um, some previous historians have quite focused on in the way that I have, is that there is almost a paradox that the German army fought its battles brilliantly well, and yet Nazi Germany fought the war unbelievably incompetently. That Nazi Germany and, and Hitler's regime got almost every big decision disastrously wrong. Um, when you've only got to think of the invasion of Russia and, and, uh, and the handling of the U-boat campaign, which was also a shambles, not generally understood, and um, the, the Battle of Britain and all the rest of it and so on. And what was the, the great paradox about it all was, here was the German army, who on the battlefield were fantastically good, and you could generally reckon that in order to beat any German force, we had to have more of everything, and especially a lot more air power, to have a chance of beating any German force, even one smaller than us. And yet, fortunately for civilization and uh, for the Allied cause in the war, that, um, that again and again Hitler and the Nazi regime managed to undo the best efforts of the German army. I mean, heaven knows, if, if the German generals had just been left to do things their way, they might even have won in Russia. It was only because Hitler insisted on doing it his way and uh, dividing the, um, the armies instead of the German army. The German generals wanted to go straight for Moscow and nothing else, but Hitler insisted on dividing the army for Barbarossa and so on. And the German generals um, knew um, the limits of what their country and their army could reasonably do, but um, Hitler didn't. So we were jolly lucky that in a sort of backhanded way, we sort of had Hitler on our side. It's almost a bit like in the First World War when he blamed politicians for interfering with the army. In the Second World War, he did it himself. Well, it was, there was a huge difference, and I wrote about this in my last book, Finest Years, that extraordinary contrast, that although Churchill um, took a huge part in the military decisions, if the military advice on big issues was strongly against him, he would almost always defer to it. He complained, he shouted and screamed and... Um, sometimes burst into tears. But in the last resort, he would, on the big things, he would very seldom go against the professional advice of his generals and admirals and air marshals. Hitler wasn't like that at all, again and again and again. Um, that Hitler's senior military people would tell him to do or not do X or Y, and he would still go and do it. And um, this was absolutely disastrous. So you can make an endless list of all the things that... Um, if Hitler had done them differently, um, or not done them in some cases, then it's just possible the war might have had a different outcome. Although I think another important point, which I've also discussed in my book, another basic truth which isn't generally understood, because the Nazis did so brilliantly well in 1940-41, we tended to overrate them. Um, in fact, um, Germany economically and industrially was not nearly as strong as we thought. But... Um, 
what's amazing is that the Germans managed to do as much as they did from a very weak industrial base. I mean, even in the middle of the Battle of Britain, we were producing single, we the British were producing single engine fighters faster than the Germans were. Um, the Germans had nothing like the, um, the um, um, output of aircraft that we did, even in, the, even in 1940, when we were relatively unprepared. And um, although later in the war they produced some things um, better than us, they went on producing better tanks than we did right to the end. But in most respects, you know, what's remarkable is just how weak the Germans were. And I hadn't realised till I was researching this book. Hitler's key economic and industrial advisers knew by December 1941, even before Pearl Harbor, hmm. that they couldn't win the war. Now, they didn't mean they'd resign themselves to losing it, but uh, they were still hoping for a negotiated peace. They were still hoping to be able to put up enough of a fight to divide the Allies and persuade one side or the other to make a deal. Um, but um, most histories of the war say, oh, well, November, December 1942 was the turning point, because that was when, first of all, of course, the Russians won the victory at Stalingrad. Yeah. Um, we won El Alamein. The Germans, uh, the Americans landed in North Africa. Uh, and in the Far East, um, the, the, the Japanese tide was rolled back. But I hadn't realized till I was researching this book that key informed people in Germany realized the gig was up much, much sooner than that. The moment the German army failed to get to Moscow in the first winter of the war, when it was thrown back from the gates of Moscow in December 1941, they knew that military victory in the war was now unattainable. And in fact, one or two of them had the courage to suggest to Hitler he should make peace. Of course, he didn't. But, um, but from that moment on, they knew that what they were fighting for was um, to try and force a negotiation not to achieve absolute um, military victory. Um, and I hadn't, I hadn't taken that aboard myself until I was writing this book. That's fascinating. And so then even had they won at Stalingrad, say, they couldn't really have won the war in the long run. By that stage, once the Americans were in, um, from the moment the Americans were in, of course, the Germans were also completely underestimated, uh, German economic power, um, uh, sorry, American economic power. Um, it's very hard to see. Of course, they're going to kept the war going a long time. But um, Germany was so stretched and in such desperate straits um, um, uh, economically. Uh, and of course, one of the most, actually, one thing I've written a lot about in the book, which I think is terribly interesting, is food. Um, food was absolutely pivotal to um, to every aspect of the war. That um, I mean, the fundamental one of the fundamental reasons that Hitler um, invaded Russia was because he wanted the corn of the Ukraine. And one of the things that's most terrifying is when you read the documents that the Germans deliberately planned when they invaded Russia that they made a calculation by which they reckoned somewhere between five and seven million Ukrainians would starve because they were going to ship um, their grain, their corn to Germany to feed the German people. And the ruthlessness with which Hitler pillaged uh, all, his, all the occupied nations to feed his own people, and the Japanese did the same too. Um, the, the curious result was that nobody in Germany was ever hungry until the end of the war. Once they lost the war, May 1945, the rest of 1945, a lot of Germans were nearly starving. But up to the day they lost the war, um, but really they'd had a pretty cushy war food-wise. Um, whereas um, French, the French and the Belgians had been very short of food. Mm. And French children, actually, French children born in the 1940s, early 1940s, um, were, I think, several centimetres shorter than their counterparts born 10 years earlier. Because... You know, these children, there were a lot of children with symptoms of rickets in Belgium and so on and so forth, that all these countries have been systematically pillaged to feed Germany. And the Japanese did just the same. And again, not many people know that something up to 5 million people died in Southeast Asia during the war, almost entirely as a result of deliberate Japanese policies that um, the Japanese ordered the Vietnamese, for example, first of all, to start sending all their rice to Japan, and secondly, to replant a lot of their rice areas uh, with fibre crops uh, for textiles that the Japanese wanted. And some Japanese, uh, some Vietnamese, old Vietnamese today, they say, and I hadn't realised this till I was writing this book either, 
they say the experience of 1943-44 was worse for them than the Vietnam War with the Americans a generation later. And when you look at those numbers, that a million Vietnamese, at least a million Vietnamese, died in that period, then you can understand why they feel that way. So these are things, again, that, um, that I learned when I was writing the book, and I don't think many, many British readers know. No, I don't, I don't think they would, to be honest. Um, can I quickly ask you why you chose the name of the book, All Hell Let Loose? I chose the title of the book because if you look at any memoir or account written by anybody who went through the Second World War, almost always somewhere they'll say, and then all hell broke loose. Hmm. And sometimes our generation attempted to dismiss that and say, oh, it's just a cliche, it's just the sort of thing that people say. But if you actually think about it, that for the people who lived through this, it was a very vivid statement of what they experienced, that there were all these people who'd grown up leaving peaceful, orderly lives in which they or their parents um, went out to work every morning and came back every night and had their tea at five o'clock and, um, and looked after the dog and um, um, tilled the garden and all the rest of it. And suddenly, in 1939, they were plunged into experiences which were like Dante's Inferno, which were like medieval visions of hell, in which um, they saw human beings ripped asunder, they saw whole communities and cities um, crushed to rubble, in which they saw people um, starving to death and dying in the most terrible fashions. And I think all hell broke loose is a very, the, I think that's a very vivid phrase to describe um, what the experience of the Second World War was like for a vast number of people. And that's why I've chosen it as, as my title. And just one last question. Um, so is this going to be your last word on the Second World War, do you think? I feel at the moment that after writing this, I've tried to put into All Hell Let Loose all things I've learnt over the last 35 years' research that I hadn't put into earlier books. Um, but having done that, I try never to write books unless I think I've got something new to say, and I, I think that I've said my piece about the Second World War, and now I'm researching 1914, in which I'm producing a book called Centenary um, in three years' time. And I'm loving researching 1914 because it's fascinating and it's wonderful to work on a new period. And again, I feel that surge of excitement. I think, here's something I can tell people, or here's quite a lot of things that I don't think they know already about 1914. So... Um, the only thing that would ever make me write another book about the Second World War is if I came across something that I felt I could tell people they didn't, something they didn't, they didn't know already. So I've, I've loved working on this period for the last 35 years and I've learned a huge amount and I've met extraordinary people and been deeply moved by their stories that they've told me or that I've read. But I feel that enough is enough and this is... It signals a closure for me, and, and, and I hope the readers will find it a closure too. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100-plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. That was some Max Hastings. You can read more from him in our November issue. Now we have a short advertisement feature. This month, Oxford University Press publishes a new biography of Heinrich Himmler. In the following clip, the author Peter Longerisch describes what it was like to put every aspect of the Nazi leader's personal life and political career under the microscope. My name is Peter Longerisch. I completed a biography of Heinrich Himmler and I have to say to spend uh, six, seven years with a person like this is not always a pleasure and this is probably uh, the reason why there are not too many uh, biographies on this man and I think I can say that my biography is the first comprehensive uh, uh, book on him uh, which makes full use of the, uh, of the material which came to light after the Eastern European Archives uh, opened uh, uh, two decades ago. 
Now the person is a rather ordinary man on the one hand, on the other side he seems to be a self-controlled person who lives behind a, a mask and it's very difficult to to find um, an approach uh, to his personality. I think for a biography like this you have to combine um, the traditional uh, biographical method which with um, so modern, uh, with a modern structural approach. You cannot uh, explain um, Himmler and all what he did you know, by looking at his childhood as youth. You have to uh, look into the general history of the Nazi movement as it uh, developed. The problem for a biographer is to explain how this rather unremarkable man could become the leader of such a powerful organization like the SS and could become, towards the end of the Second World War, the second uh, most powerful leader in the Third Reich. Peter Longrush's book, Heinrich Himmler, A Life, is published by Oxford University Press and is available through Amazon and in all good bookstores. For more information, visit www.oup.co.uk forward slash Himmler. Back to the interviews then. Next up is Dr Justin Meggett, University Senior Lecturer in the Study of Religion and the Origins of Christianity at the University of Cambridge. And he's talking about the somewhat untold story of the slave trade in North Africa. Dr Meggett is discussing this subject at the Cambridge Festival of Ideas coming up soon. I talked to him to find out more about the subject. So you've been researching uh, an aspect of slavery which um, which perhaps we don't immediately think of. When, you, when someone mentions slavery in historic context, thoughts immediately turn to the trade in Africans being shipped to the Americas by Europeans. But you've been looking at another aspect of slavery, which is uh, the enslavement of, of Britons and others who are captured by privateers based in North Africa. So can you give us a quick introduction to this? What period are we talking about? What sort of people were captured? From where and by whom, and, and where were they taken to? <laughs> okay, well, uh, right, that's quite a few questions. Uh, yes. uh, I mean, essentially, it's it's going really from about the early, well, from about the fifteenth century, um, but it begins to get a significant feature of, of English experience anyway um, from the late sixteenth and then seventeenth century. These privateers from North Africa are capturing people really from throughout the Mediterranean um, and beyond, and the beyond bit is. Really where the English come in, but not all the English, a lot of the English and Scots and Irish and Welsh are captured on boats in the Mediterranean. So the majority of people who are captured are sailors who are engaged in a trade in the Mediterranean. But then again, you start getting, particularly in the 17th century, as um, the volume of trade across the Atlantic um, with the English colonies becomes more significant. You get um, people captured travelling across the Atlantic to places like Barbados and Jamaica and um, the English colonies in the Americas. So that's the main source. But you do also get um, just average men, women and children grabbed on raids along the coast, particularly in Cornwall. Um, and there's a famous raid, for example, in uh, Ireland of Baltimore in 1631. Um, so that's where the um, Britons, as it were, are captured. But obviously there's lots lots of other nationalities too, but mostly captured in the Mediterranean, but sometimes with raids as far afield as the Vestman Islands, which are Iceland, for example, in 1627, you get a significant chunk of that population enslaved there. So, so it was quite the- a lot. Okay, was the 17th century the height of this experience? The 17th century was the height of the experience, and it really begins to, it tails off towards really the beginning of the 18th century, it begins to tail off. Um, so when you look at, for example, charities that are set up to support um, slaves or to provide money for redemption of slaves, those are lucky enough to be redeemed, they really begin to run out of work in the kind of, in the sort of mid-18th century. But in the 17th century, it's a, a very significant um, experience for for Britons, and it's caused a lot of anxiety nationally. And where do these people end up? In, in North African slave markets? Well, yes, most of them end up in North African slave markets, so in, in Morocco and um, Tunis, um, Algiers, the, these uh, kind of key areas. Um, yes, that's where most of them end up, and most of them stay there. Some end up going further into the Cosmon, Ottoman Empire, um, but most end up just staying in there or in the periphery. Um, although in Morocco, they do go much further inland. They get used on big building projects. Um, but mostly they hang around in the north. Well, they're held in the north, north African um, ports. 
And how much do we know about the experience of these people? Do we have much testimony from them? Yes, we do. We have quite a few um, accounts. Um, of course, these accounts are quite interesting because they're very much filtered through the, um, the the kind of expectations of the readers at the time, as it were. So a lot of the accounts are rather similar. Some of them even are kind of plagiarised. Um, um, but but we do have first-hand accounts um, that are published, but we also have um, first-hand accounts through letters, um, for example. It was quite a popular form of um, literature at the time. They were really kind of the precursor to the to the novel, I think, in many ways, in English as well, emerging at the same time as you really get, begin to get novels emerging in um, English culture. So these things were very popular reads, quite, quite exciting, but also quite terrifying, of course. That's part of the appeal. And, and presumably it was a, a very unpleasant experience for those characters. Well, it varied. It was unpleasant. I mean, a big debate is just how unpleasant was it because, of course, of the much more kind of morally significant um, of um, enslavement of Africans uh, who ended up in the Americas. There's quite a debate even quite early on about, well, is, was this really the same? Were these people really, they experienced the same kind of hopeless slavery and uh, appalling conditions that, that Africans experienced. Um, and for some, definitely. I mean, the ones I particularly focused at, because I've done a kind of almost kind of micro-historical study of a particular group of the slaves, um, they, for the most part, many were put to death, many just were worked to death, uh, many just died of neglect, but a few were redeemed. There was always the unusual thing relative to, for example, African slavery, was that a few were capable of being ransomed, that they were kind of worth, um, rather like modern pirates, as it were, if you tried to hang on to somebody, they could be worth more alive than uh, than dead and more uh, alive than sort of worked to death, as it were. So there were always a few that were capable of being ransomed. Yeah, so that's that's a, a, a unique to this uh, this this aspect of the story, then, is it? Because that that never happens with African slaves. Well, no, it doesn't happen with African slaves. So, so it is it is different. Mm. Um, but at the time, the actual slaves themselves, um, some of them distinguish between their experience. Some have absolutely horrific experiences, and some say, "Well, actually, mine wasn't so bad." You know, I was bought by a very nice nice man or something like that and you know made to feel part of the family which sounds a bit a bit odd but um if they had a particular skill and um a lot of the people owning them weren't necessarily that wealthy or ruthless or anything like that they were perhaps a farmer who needed another farmhand and so they could sometimes i mean sometimes they even get married off to relatives but but they are uh, very much you know they're not the typical experience but they do show the variety of experience uh, that people um, could have so how does this tie into the uh, the broader story of slavery then? Because you, you mentioned to me um, when we were discussing this before that the first collective statement uh, made in support of abolition of slavery came in uh, 1688 in America, but it wasn't talking about African slaves. It was talking about those uh, enslaved in, in, the, in the story we're talking about. Well, um, not exactly, actually. Um, the, the statement itself was against African slavery, but right. what was unusual about it was so it's the first collective statement against slavery, it's only in, in Western society, um, and it's done by a, a, a bunch of um, Christians in Pennsylvania, Germantown, Pennsylvania, recent uh, uh, recent immigrants to, uh, to Pennsylvania. And why I'd mentioned it was what's unusual is the the grounds on which slavery is opposed. And I, one of the things that's overlooked is that the beginning of this statement is uh, a call to the reader to imagine what it would be like if you were enslaved. But what's different about that kind of um, ethical um, idea in this, this letter is it says, imagine if you were captured by the Turks. And what's interesting is that the people in 1688 who were, wrote that declaration were at the time raising money to try to ransom, to redeem free uh, fellow co-religionists who were themselves um, enslaved in Algiers and then Morocco. So what's, I think, striking about it is the first kind of uh, statement against the, uh, for the abolition of slavery comes from a group of people who are themselves uh, they know and experience uh, or within their within their extended kind of network they know people who are enslaved so it's not a kind of theoretical thing imagine what it's like to be a slave it's something that was actually quite a kind of a reality for these people as a possibility um, even some of the people who'd helped ship them over to Pennsylvania were themselves have been then subsequently been captured and enslaved in um, in North Africa so so, so did it continue to inform those abolition debates subsequent to that? No, it's, it's, um, it does in an indirect way. Um, 
um, that you do get people trying to criticise when, they, when they're making a kind of religious argument um, for the abolition of slavery. And obviously, in the Western context, that was based on Christian um, language, that they would often say, well, they're try, it's often trying to shame um, these, the uh, slaveholders by saying, well, actually, the Turks treat their slaves much better than you treat yours, and you call yourself a Christian. You know, so, um, so in that sense, it does. But actually, the Germantown Declaration 1688 is, is interestingly, historically, is the first statement, but it, it goes nowhere. You know, you really don't get significant movements of the abolition of slavery emerging till later in the 18th century but it's it's an interesting dot you know it's an interesting document and in the the period it appears is a striking one because of this um, european experience of slavery that was going on in the 17th century so um uh, so that's why it's you know of note but I, i'm afraid tragically anybody looking at the history of the abolition of slavery realizes that 1688 turns out to be a bit of a dead end it's it's uh, it's important in uh, this kind of sentiment but it's not important for any practical purposes. So it's, it's interesting that they were sort of talking about slavery in comparative terms in the sense of, of looking after slaves better in one place than another. Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, one again, some of the... Um some of the yes, definitely, critics would often say this, and, and um, in later, in fact, in the 18th century, they would, they would do this. And when you look at the um, publication of accounts of slaves in the 17th century that start uh, occurring... Um, um, later, because they become a kind of um, uh, they, they they are a kind of perennial interest, but in the 18th century you get them being reprinted and people have a, a renewed interest in them. It's partly for the, on those kind of grounds, really, um, that uh, yes, they're horrible stories, but they are used by abolitionists to sort of try and shame the you know Christendom, as it were, into its uh, um, that it should at least behave as well as, if not better than, these uh, non-Christians. What other social implications of of this uh, slavery business going on with, with Europeans were there in the 17th century? How else did it affect society? Well, it affected society in all kinds of ways. I think sometimes in quite surprising ways. Um, Namil uh, Mata, who's really the one of the absolute key kind of experts on this, um, says it makes some very interesting points. That if you look at the role of women in politics in the 17th century, you get, um, for example, in the 1620s onwards, these really interesting phenomenon of women who are um, left behind, as it were, when their men are captured. And a lot of the men captured are, said, sailors or perhaps um, fishermen, you know, who are just captured because they're out to sea a little bit off the coast. Then, of course, they leave behind families um, that are destitute because they've lost their breadwinners. So you see them cropping up on their kind of parish charity um, accounts. But the really interesting thing that uh, uh, Professor Massa noticed was that really from the 1620s onwards, you start getting large numbers of women um, signing petitions and petitioning government and really... Um, really uh, very doggedly um, demanding that um, ransoms be raised, you know, nationally to pay for the freedom of their menfolk because they are so destitute as a consequence of loss of thousands of these uh, people. Because although the Britons were only a minority, certainly in places like Cornwall and whatever, there was a significant effect on uh, local populations of losing um, these kinds of figures, uh, sailors and um, fishermen who provided income um so it did become quite a national scandal um and but the role of these women was very interesting there's also one other um one other i think surprising fact which on the kind of micro study i've done of quaker slaves because of the 1688 uh, document was by quakers so i got quite interested in quakers who were enslaved is that rather kind of paradoxically the quakers enslaved in north africa did have, at least the ones in Algiers, had um, freedom of religion that at the time was denied them back in England. So you get Quakers in England writing saying, well, I know you're slaves, but you're sort of better off than we are because at least you can have your Quaker meetings, whereas we can't, <laughs> which is a bit of a paradox. Really. <laughs> That's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And they then use this in their own literature arguing for toleration and freedom for um, uh, for them and for others, uh, 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 um, of course, because, for example, Pennsylvania was very much founded with the expectation that all kinds of religious groups could uh, could be happy there, and it's founded by um, William Penn, the um, leading Quaker. But they use this example of freedom under the Turks, even as slaves, as something, again, to try and shame um, those who denied them freedom back in England um, and in the English colonies. 
And did so. that have any impact? Was, was that um, well, as a tactic, it's difficult to know that they had a tactic. Eventually, they did get uh, more more freedom. But um, it, it's interesting that this kind of uh, Turkish um, religious um, um, freedom was used. I mean, it was it was just one argument amongst amongst many. But it, it was it was uh, it's, it's very interesting. Having said that, the slaves themselves may have had religious freedom, but they had a rather high mortality rate. <laughs> so right. that didn't make it <laughs> because they were you know abused. And in fact, despite the religious freedom, some of the Quaker eccentricities released from those outside, like, for example, not taking your hat off to anybody um, because, you know, just kind of radical egalitarianism actually resulted in some of the Quaker slaves in North Africa being beheaded. So um, it wasn't always a, um, the freedom wasn't always quite as uh, liberal as we might assume. Right. Okay. In conclusion, how does this story end? How does the, uh, the, the slave trade peter out? Well, the slave trade really peters out, um, I think, with the, just the growing military strength or naval strength of of, um, of British forces. But really, the, the generally, it's it's with the just growth of of the of the empire, so that the um, uh, the Barbary pirates find it privateers find it much harder to um, to actually roam free, as it were, across the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. Um, yes, I mean, in conc- that's an, in- uh, an important conclusion. I'll say there's one or two other things that are maybe worth um, mentioning, if that's possible in this uh, yeah. context, which I, I think one of the things that now makes it a story that's so interesting um, is the way in which these privateers are actually aren't quite what they necessarily appear to be. They're often talked about as Turks or talked about as Moors. And many of them, I suppose, ethnically would be. But the term Turk in the 17th, um, 18th century didn't mean somebody from Turkey. It meant anybody who uh, behaved, adopted the dress, customs and religion of the Turks. And actually a lot of the privateers were not from the Mediterranean at all. They were from Europe. So they were Turks, but they were in fact Dutch or English um, people, some of whom were... Um, converts to Islam, but many of uh, whom were not. They didn't necessarily have to be. So when they had ended up in North Africa, they um, or they'd often say chosen North Africa or ended up there because they'd been captured themselves. They made it a base, as it were, from being a private. So there was a very multinational kind of fleets. So I think that's quite important in this story because it's often, particularly at the moment, people tend to tend to think rather sort of simplistically about sort of the West and the, you know the kind of Islamic empires and all this sort of thing. And actually, this story is a far more complex one. I mean, one of the leading um, privateers, for example, was somebody called Jack Ward, who was an English Englishman who was based in Tunis and ended up really running the show in Tunis as a privateer, or again a Dutchman, the one who sacked Baltimore. Um, um, Jan Janssen, who was a uh, again, he was Dutch, but um, became an absolutely key uh, key privateer. So that that's another part of the story, as it were. It's a it's a complex story about uh, identity and religion and ethnicity and that sort of thing. Um, lastly, do, can you identify any particular legacy for this period? Is there any ongoing significance to what what happened there? Um, I think that it is something which people are, could. It has a modern legacy in, in a number of countries people are only becoming aware of it i mean it has a very specific historical legacy i'll say in britain it's not very well known um unless you're from cornwall or, or whatever where you may see for example there are memorials in churches to people who um you know captured or fought back or something like that but in the rest of britain perhaps not so well known but there is a very distinctive legacy in some places i mean in iceland still is very much part of their national identity um this these raids that they lost their population i think in the kind of the contemporary world of um, the contemporary political um, world, this, this story is one that has a lot of uses and misuses. I think you'll find it's a very controversial area of study. There's some great scholars like Nabil Matter and Robert Davis, for example, producing some really well-informed and very important work. I mean, Nabil Matter's work, for example, also looks at Arabic sources, looks from the other side, that a lot of people in North Africa are terrified of Europeans coming and stealing them, enslaving them, <laughs> because one of the key ways of getting people out of slavery was to swap them. So, you know, they were always very anxious about being enslaved. Um, and I hope 
you know, it, it's a light, it's an area which I think people will see a lot more of. This story will become much more prominent. But I hope the work of people like Matter and Davis is, is the is the work that people turn to, and perhaps my own contribution, um, because there's some rather generalising sort of uses of this story, which kind of uh, use rather simple religious sort of definitions and think about it all as a matter of war um, between sort of different you know, fundamental religious kind of identities. And it wasn't. I mean, when you get down to the details, it was often, for example, the different bits in North Africa often at war with each other. European states were at war with each other, so they were making alliances and swapping flags and religious identities all over the place. <laughs> so, uh, But it, it is a really interesting period in, 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 in history, and of course it's quite, in one sense, quite rightly eclipsed by the study of, uh, of the African slave trade uh, by Europeans, but it shouldn't be forgotten. And so I mean, I'm glad it's coming back into view, but I hope it's going to come back into view much more kind of responsibly than perhaps some of the more generalised literature that's out there at the moment. That was Cambridge University's Dr Justin Meggett. He will be speaking on this subject as part of the Cambridge Festival of Ideas on the 30th of October at Maddingley Hall in Cambridge. Go to the website cam.ac.uk slash festival of ideas for more information on that. Dr. Meggett's next publication is Quakers and Muslims in the 17th Century, which we'll be publishing early in 2012. So that's the end of it for this week. Please do get in touch if you have any comments on the podcast, particularly if you have any ideas about how we can make it better. Email us podcast at historyextra.com or contact us at twitter.com slash historyextra or facebook.com slash historyextra. Next week we'll be discussing the curiously unheralded late 18th century naval battle known as the Glorious First of June. I do very much hope that you'll tune in to listen to that.